Well, let me go ahead and say good evening to everyone. I'm very thankful to have another opportunity where we can press together, study together, learn together. By the grace of God, grow together. And I believe we're living in a very serious pressing time. Living in a time where Jesus wants to unite us with his heart and with one another so that we can be an army of soldiers, that we can go forward in the doing of his work and not simply the doing of it, but even the finishing of it. Therefore, we're going to talk tonight about the divine uh, solution that God can help us to have the kind of homes that he wants us to have by which we can go forward in the finishing of his work. And as we prepare our hearts to go through this simple little study tonight, I just once again, as has been our custom night after night, that if we can kneel together, let us do so right now. And if you can't kneel, just bow your heads where you are. But if you can kneel, let's kneel together and let us pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful. We thank you, Lord, that we're right upon the edges of another holy Sabbath day of rest. And therefore, in advance, we thank you for bringing us safely through another week. We thank you for your tender mercies, and we thank you for the privilege of Christian fellowship. We thank you that we can have an opportunity to hear heaven speak and to give our unadulterated time to you and your words of truth and to the fellowship of one another by which we grow in grace. And so, Lord, we come first asking for the forgiveness of our sins. We pray that you'll please cleanse us from all unrighteousness and that you'll grant us the presence of your Holy Spirit, that he may come and teach us and open our eyes and help us to behold wondrous things out of your word. And I thank you that you've heard this prayer and I commit myself afresh into your hands. And I ask that you will please take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And this is my prayer and this is our prayer that we do ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We can go ahead and have the uh, screen open up for us. Last night, we were studying about Satan's attack upon the remnant families. We know that the devil wants to destroy God's church and God's truth. And he knows the best way to do that, of course, is to attack the very embodiment of truth, which is Christ. But of course, we are also connected to Christ, written upon his palms. And therefore, Satan knows if he can't get Jesus, then he gets those whom Jesus loves. For when he hits us, he hurts Christ. You read that in Isaiah 63 and verses 8 and 9. Every time we go through affliction, the Bible says God is afflicted. He hurts when he sees you and I hurting. And as a result of that, when Satan wants to hurt the heart of Christ, he aims at those who are written upon the heart of Christ, which is none other than you and I. I read a startling statement in the book Councils on Stewardship, page 136, and it was very powerful because it said the only satisfaction that Satan has in playing the game of life for human souls is the satisfaction that comes to him when he hurts the heart of Christ. I mean, that just tells us how evil and wicked he really is. When Satan kills a man, when Satan takes down a man or a woman, it is not that he rejoices so much simply over the fact that we go down, but it's as if when he knocks us down, it's as if he looks in the face of Jesus and says, look at what I've done to another one of your children. And he likes to enjoy the pain that it brings to the heart of Christ. It is for this reason, brothers and sisters, that I have made a resolve in my mind day by day, I don't want to do anything to hurt my master anymore. I don't want to do anything to hurt my master because there's more at stake than even my feelings. 
There's more at stake than what I go through. I now understand that every time I choose to sin, I'm not just hurting myself and those whom I love. I'm literally hurting the heart of God. And when you love God, the last thing you want to do is do anything to hurt him. I love my wife, brothers and sisters. And I don't want to do anything to hurt her. You understand? That's what love does. It removes that element from us. So therefore, when we think about the word of God and and we think about what Jesus was showing us, last night we saw that Satan is definitely attacking the heart. And we learned that what's the heart of the church? What's the heart of the church? What did we learn? We learned that it was the home, wasn't it? We saw that the heart of the nation, the heart of society, and the heart of the church is the household. It's the home. And Satan wants to attack the heart of God. And this is why when I think about that and I realize how many of our homes look something like this. If you really are honest with yourself, brothers and sisters, do you know that this is what a lot of our homes look like? They look broken. Broken homes. Broken homes. And this is what a lot of us are going through and we are feeling and and suffering even within this very moment in time in earth's history, knowing so much Bible truth, but still having broken homes. But wait a minute. We learned last night that what is the heart of the church? What is it? It's the home. So in truth, that means then that when we think about the broken home, we're thinking about a broken heart. The church is, or rather the home is the heart of the church. And if the home is broken, then we're working with a broken heart. And do you know what Jesus said he came to do? Go to the book of Luke, the fourth chapter. I pray I give you another application to a wonderful truth found in Scripture. The Bible says in Luke, the fourth chapter. In Luke, the fourth chapter, Jesus made a declaration of his very work. And you will find that in Luke chapter 4, the Bible spells it out very clearly in verse 18. And when you get there, you just simply say amen. The Bible says in Luke 4 and verse 18, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to do what? Heal the brokenhearted. It goes on to say, He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus came, brothers and sisters, to heal the broken heart as it pertains to individuals, but also we can make an application to the home. Jesus wants to look at that broken heart, yea, broken home, and Christ has come to bring healing to our homes. And he can. No matter how much we have convinced our minds that it is impossible, we've gone too far. Those are the suggestions of Satan. I would counsel you not to listen to him. Jesus wants to let us know that's why I came. I came to bring healing to broken hearts. Now, the reality is, is that just because Christ came to bring healing to the broken heart does not mean that the broken heart will be healed. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, let's go ahead and find out as you go to the book of Luke chapter 5. Go over one chapter to Luke chapter 5. And you will notice that in Luke chapter 5, the Bible brings out something very beautiful. You see, just because Jesus came on the mission to do a work does not mean that by default we receive the benefits of the work. And here's a practical example of this. In Luke, the fifth chapter, you will notice that the Bible says something very specific in verse 17. After Jesus withdrew himself in the wilderness to pray, then came a time where it says in verse 17, and it came to pass on a certain day as he was teaching that who was there? 
It says the Pharisees and doctors of the law were sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. Now, who is being highlighted in the verse here? Pharisees and the doctors of the law. Now, generally, when you study the New Testament, when you look at the Pharisees and the doctors of the law, these were individuals that often rejected Jesus. Often, not all the time, but often rejected Jesus and put themselves up towards him as his enemies. But here it is. I like this verse because what was the attitude of Jesus even in the midst of enemies? It says that the Pharisees and the doctors of the law were there, but then it goes on to say, and the what? And the power of the Lord was present to do what? Heal them. Did you know that Jesus even wanted to win his enemies? The power of the presence of the Lord, the power of the Lord was present, not just to heal everybody else but them, but it was there even to heal them. The very people that were planning to kill him. The very people that was planning to take him out, the very people that hated him, these are the same individuals that Jesus says, I want to heal even them. But the question is, did they receive the healing? Many of them did not, brothers and sisters. You see, though Christ came to heal the brokenhearted, though the power of God is present to heal, The reality is, is that if we do not open up our hearts to the Lord to receive the healing, we don't get the healing. We do not get the healing. Now, the thing that gets me even more interested about this text is that while it shows Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted, this is what we're highlighting out of Luke 4, 18, and we can make an application that the broken heart we can apply to a broken home as well. And Christ wanted to bring healing. But we're looking now to see that just because he comes to bring healing does not mean that by default we get it. Now, what specifically was it that manifested this power of God that he wanted to give even to his enemies? Notice verses 20 to 26 of the same book in the same chapter. It is in Luke 5. We're going to look at verses 20 to 26, and let's notice what the text goes on to tell us. After Jesus made this point, the power of the Lord was present to heal. Of course, a man was brought to him. A man was brought to him. And when this man was brought to him, he was clearly in a very sick state. But I want you to notice what the Bible says as we just consider verses 20 to 26. The Bible says, And when he saw their faith, when he saw their faith, he said unto him, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And then it says, And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answering said unto them, What reason ye in your hearts? Whether is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise up and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins. That you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to do what? forgive sins, it says, he said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise and take up thy couch and go into thine house. And immediately he rose up before them and took up that whereon he lay and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed and they glorified God and were filled with fear saying, we have seen strange things today. Jesus wanted to prove through his act of medical missionary work, his divinity and his power to forgive sins. Can you imagine that? I think we just saw a snapshot of the great goal of medical missionary work. 
The great goal of medical missionary work, brothers and sisters, is that God has endorsed us with beautiful methodologies, principles, and concepts to help others be healed from their various challenges that they may come to the only one that can heal, which is God. Medical missionaries are never in the business to simply help sick sinners become healthy, vibrant, strong sinners. God, in his mind, always wanted to heal sick sinners that they may become healthy saints of God. That was always forefront in Jesus' mind. If they reject it, Jesus doesn't take away the healing. He lets them go ahead and walk away healed, but they don't understand that they missed the greatest benefit. Jesus says that they may know that I have power to forgive sins. Then he did his medical missionary work. Brothers and sisters, the power that was present to heal was none other than a beautiful power in the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. That God can look upon a guilty race of people completely and holistically worthy of destruction. Completely and holistically worthy of eternal separation. The Bible does not just simply label us as sinners, but the Bible calls us something else. Go to the book of Romans, the fifth chapter, and let us see from the text. Many a times when we call ourselves sinners, sometimes we need to understand what that means in an even greater context. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, and when you get there, you just let me know by saying amen. It is in Romans, the fifth chapter, that the Bible lets us know something very, very important. You see, in Romans chapter 5, if you were to look at verse 8, the Bible says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet what? While we were yet sinners, it says Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, guilty, Christ died for us. But then when you look at verse 10, God uses another form of language. He says, For if when we were what? enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his life so one minute verse 8 calls us sinners verse 10 however calls us enemies and Jesus came to demonstrate the highest form of love that could be demonstrated unto mankind by which he can come to guilty people sinners yea even his own enemies and he was willing to lose everything that they may gain everything this is beautiful, brothers and sisters. This, this is what we're going to spend eternity seeking to really understand. How can God deal with enemies like this? Jesus wanted to win those brothers. And sometimes I have to ask myself, do I have that attitude? I have learned a very important lesson, brothers and sisters. One of the great reasons why Jesus says, let the wheat and tares grow together. If anybody knows anything about farming, you know that tares are also what's called weeds. Now, when you think about farming, there is a function. This is not the holistic function of weeds, but this is one function of weeds. One of the functions of weeds is to let the farmer know that their soil is deficient in certain nutrients. It's one of the functions of a weed. Certain kind of weeds grow, and you can actually say, okay, based on this weed, I need to put more calcium. Based on this weed, I need to put more lime, or whatever it may be. So weeds are a wonderful indicator. That's one of their functions. It's an indicator to let us know that our soil is deficient in something. Well, you will be amazed, brothers and sisters, to know that God also equates the human heart to soil. 
That's why he gives the parable of the sower that went forth to sow and he puts the seeds in the soil. And the soil is dealing with the human heart. Now, when God put those seeds in the soil, think about it. If our hearts are synonymous, parabolically speaking, to the soil and weeds or tares are actually synonymous to these weeds and one of the key functions of a weed is to let us know the deficiencies in the soil then could it be that one of the reasons why God says let them grow together is because sometimes you don't know yourself until you come in contact with a weed it is when suddenly you see when you go to the wheat meetings you know sometimes we call these camp meetings wheat meetings because everybody typically will come and they're generally in harmony with their thoughts. There's nobody in here more than likely that's going to say, there's no sanctuary in heaven. We know there is. There are many of us that's going to say, oh, yes, we believe in the most holy place work. We believe in the blotting out of sins. We believe in Daniel and Revelation. We believe, we believe, wheat meeting. But the question is, what happens when we leave the wheat meetings like these? And we go back to our local churches where someone says there is no sanctuary. It was all allegorical. What happens when we come amongst those who say, oh, Ellen White, her writings are not authoritative. They're just simply good counsels that we can accept or reject and there's no difference. What happens when we see individuals sometimes, sometimes, even from the desk that preach some of the most hellish torch of false prophecy that we have ever heard? The question is, do you still love them? The question is, would you still be willing to give up that they may gain? Jesus came and he was willing to give that others would gain. And so it is, brothers and sisters, that when I think about this ideology of forgiveness, this is something that we would do well to talk about. And that's why I'm so thankful for my dear brother as he was up here and he was bringing out different points of the elements of, of forgiveness. And I was like, Lord, this is beautiful because God knew that this is exactly what he impressed upon my heart to talk about, talked about tonight. Forgiveness. You know why? Because, brothers and sisters, you're going to find that true forgiveness is one of the hardest things to exercise in the home. You'd be amazed. You ever met people that are nice to those outside of their home, but mean and impatient to those in their homes? What's up with that? How can a man say to his wife, honey, can you make a certain thing for me or do this or do that? The wife may forget because she got a little bit tied up. The husband comes home and immediately he can lose his temper and begin to say and speak all sorts of things in an adverse manner that he can't even take back from his bride and hurt her real bad. Yet, if he goes to work or if he goes to church and he asks a sister at work or church, do ABC thing for me, please, and then that person doesn't do it, all of a sudden, well, you know, I understand. Sometimes people forget. Why does that person get the nice part of us, but the people in our home get the worst part of us? The same thing goes for how some wives treat their husbands. Same thing goes for how some parents treat their, treat their children. If my child or if our children does something wrong, what's wrong with you? Why is it? And we give some of the, sometimes we say that horrible thing to children. You always, and whatever comes after, we have no idea how that impresses. Now, I'm not a psychologist like my dear brother, but I think we're in agreement on that. That when you tell somebody, you always, you can do some pretty bad damage to someone's mind. But yet, if a little child does something wrong in church or someplace else, now, little Johnny, you know you shouldn't do that. And all of a sudden, we're very nice to little Johnny. Very nice, very cordial, very kind. 
So God says, listen, this thing about forgiveness, it is absolutely imperative. And one of the places that many a times it is not practiced in the mannerism of God is in the home. And that's why the Lord wants to talk about this thing tonight. You see, when we think about the home, we know that many homes are broken, but Jesus wants to heal those broken homes. But there's a process in it, and I want you to see why it's so imperative. So I'm going to give these biblical points here to help us understand something about how does this healing work begin to work even in our homes. So I want you to consider some of these scriptures. When you think about Rehoboam, who was Rehoboam's father? Anybody knows Rehoboam's father was? Solomon. Solomon. Now, the Bible says something very interesting about Rehoboam. It says in 2 Chronicles 12 and verse 1, And it came to pass, when Rehoboam had established the kingdom, it says, and had strengthened himself, he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. Is that bad or is that good? That's very bad. How about this person here? Amon. Amon, Ammon. Anybody knows who his father was? Any Bible scholars? You know who Ammon's father was? Manasseh. Manasseh. Now watch this. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles 33, verses 21 and 22, I think you'll get where I'm going by this verse. It says, Ammon was two and twenty years old when he began to reign, and reigned two years in Jerusalem. But he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, read the next sentence with me, as did who? Manasseh his father. It says, For Ammon sacrificed unto all the carved images which Manasseh, his father, had made and served them. Who was Rehoboam's father? Solomon. Who was Ammon's father? Manasseh. How about these guys? Hophni and Phinehas. Who was their father? Eli. Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says, Now the sons of Eli were sons of who? Belial, sons of Belial. You know, one of the words that is in the Hebrew for the word Belial is uh, destruction, is destruction. And the reason why that's important is because when you study Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, and it talks about the man of sin, and it calls him the son of what? Perdition. The word perdition, you know what it means? It means destruction. And the only time you find the word sons of perdition in the Bible is only twice. You see it pertaining to the man of sin, and you see it pertaining to Judas. But if you were to understand sons of Belial, sons of Belial also means destruction. So when you look at Hophni and Phinehas, it actually means that they also were sons of destruction. So when we really want to understand who that power is, that system is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we would do well to consider not just the characteristics of Judas, but even the characteristics of Hophni and Phinehas. And that was a side point. But Hophni and Phinehas were sons of destruction, and the Bible says they knew not the Lord. To the point that it says in verse 17 of the same book and chapter, Wherefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. These brothers' influence was so foul that it caused people to not even want to participate with the church services anymore. Now, there's a common denominator between Rehoboam, Ammon, and Hophni and Phinehas. They all had parents that did not follow the ways of the Lord. 
And as a result of that, whatever negative, sinful traits that was in those parents that were not checked were passed on to their children, and now their children were doing the same thing. Therefore, we are told very clearly in inspiration, it says, watch this now, to a what kind of extent? To a large extent, parents create the atmosphere of the home circle. And when there is disagreement between father and mother, the children partake of the same spirit. Adventist home, page 16. You see, Solomon created an atmosphere in his home. His children partook. Manasseh created an atmosphere in his home. His children partook. Eli created an atmosphere in his home. His children partook. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for you and I. If we are going to truly see change in our homes, we must understand that we create an atmosphere in our home. And if we create an atmosphere of rebellion or disagreement, bitterness, anger, resentment, unforgiveness, then that will pass on and our children will partake of the same spirit. So when we think about the broken heart, the broken home, God wants to heal. Amen. But we have to understand, brothers and sisters, then that means that forgiveness is going to become something very, very imperative to you and I. It's going to become something that we're going to have to ask the Lord, Lord, I need you to do something for me that I cannot do for myself. And this, brothers and sisters, might appear impossible, but go to the book of Luke, the 18th chapter. And I realize that maybe there are some of you in this uh, room tonight that actually have those heaven-like homes. And what I would say to you is, God bless you. And may you continue having heaven on earth. But I know that the great grand majority of God's people are still seeking for heaven, even in their homes. And therefore, I'm hoping and I'm praying that this may speak very wonderfully to your heart tonight. So therefore, the Bible says in Luke, the 18th chapter, and when you get there, you just let me know by saying amen. The Bible says in Luke, the 18th chapter, it says in verse 27, it says in Luke 18, verse 27, and he said, the things which are what? Impossible with men are possible with God. So do not allow your mind to become convinced that you cannot forgive ABC person. Or this person cannot forgive you. In other words, there are some offenses that have taken place in our lives that at times we have convinced ourselves there is no way I will never forgive this brother. I will never forgive this sister. I will never do it. And we don't understand how much we're closing when we adopt this attitude. You might even close your own probation if you're not careful. We have to understand that God says, listen, even the things that appear, appear impossible with man, the Lord says they are possible with God. But Jesus also said something else. He said, according to your faith, be it unto you. If you believe, all things are possible to him that believes. But if you don't believe, guess what you can say? You can say what a man said a long time ago. It was a brother who had a son filled with demons, came to Jesus' disciples and said, please heal my son. They tried, but they failed. Along comes Jesus. And when Jesus comes along, you know this story. It's in Mark 9. You can look at pretty much verses 23 onward. And here it is that Jesus comes along and this man says, Lord, my, my, your disciples couldn't heal my son and all these things. And Jesus asked him, do you believe that I can do this? And I love his answer. And I pray that his answer will be your answer anytime you find yourself in that little battle. That brother came and said, Lord, I believe. But how did he finish it? Help thou my unbelief. Did Jesus help him? 
Is Jesus a respecter of persons? So will Jesus help you? Yes, he will. Okay, now, in Christ doing this, there are some principles that we would do well to consider, of which I want to start in Matthew, the sixth chapter. So let's go to Matthew, the sixth chapter, and let's uh, understand some beautiful principles here. Matthew, the sixth chapter, and let's look at something that Jesus says. And this is a very important uh, point of scripture here. Uh, We would do well to consider it. Matthew 6, and let's notice what the Bible says as we consider simply verse 12. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12, and when you're there, just say amen. The Bible says in Matthew 6 and verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, how many of you, I'm going to make a point here, so just follow me. How many of you have ever seen this image? Sometimes you might see it on the Sabbath school lessons. Sometimes you'll definitely see it in PowerPoint presentations. uh, And you might see it in lots of our literature. There's a picture of a man who looks very sad. Caucasian man, looks like he has a mustache, hair maybe about right here. Has his head down and he has on a very dirty looking robe. And then there's a picture of Jesus standing behind him. And he has this white robe that he's getting ready to put over the man. How many of you have seen this image before? You ever seen this picture? Okay. So you know what I'm talking about. Now, how many of you have seen that picture and said, this is beautiful? How many of you honestly have seen that picture and said, oh, this is, this is beautiful? How many have seen that? You know, there was a time that I thought that picture was so beautiful, but I realized that picture is not so beautiful. And you know why? Because I carefully looked at Zechariah chapter 3. And when I carefully look at Zechariah chapter 3, go there with me very quickly. In fact, just write it down. That's, this is not the thrust of my point. I'm making a point to make a point. So just write down Zechariah 3. It's the story of Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, when you read Zechariah 3, you will see that he has on a filthy garment. But the Bible says that God actually takes away the filthy garment and then covers him with the white, beautiful garment. In other words, righteousness by faith was never this forensic transaction by which an individual still has their dirty, sinful lifestyle on, and Jesus just now covers his dirty, sinful lifestyle in sin. You understand? He takes away all the guilt, all the penalty, all these things. He gives his merit, his power, his righteousness, his forgiveness, his holiness, and then the individual is to abide in that. In other words, it's amazing how there are things that are done in the name of Christianity, righteousness, by faith and onward, that we can look at, and in innocence, we say, oh, that's so beautiful. But then with a little bit more careful attention, we realize, ah, actually, that's not so beautiful. You understand? So it is with forgiveness. You know, when I think about forgiveness, do you know I made a mistake? I made a huge mistake. Whenever I thought about forgiveness, I I confess I've made this mistake for years. I used to always believe. As a matter of fact, I remember, I'll, I'll give you this point. I remember I did something uh, that offended a friend of mine. And I asked the friend, I said, friend, listen, I'm really sorry. I realized I was wrong. Um, would, would you please forgive me? And the person responded back, well, it's the right thing to do, isn't it? They said, of course, I need, I, I need to forgive you. It's the right thing to do. So that way I can be forgiven. And when I saw that text... That was the first time I said, something's wrong with this type of forgiveness. There are many people today that think I must forgive in order to be forgiven. It's kind of like the whole white robe situation. Many people think I must forgive that I may be forgiven. 
God forgives me because I forgive others. Thought that for a lot of times. It, it, it imperceptibly hit my mind. But I realized that was not what Matthew 6 said. The Bible says, forgive us our debts. What's the next word? As. So I realized we are not forgiven because we forgive, but as we forgive. You get that? We are not forgiven because we forgive, but as we forgive. Christ Object Lessons 251. The ground of all forgiveness is found in the unmerited love of God. But by our attitude toward others, we show whether we have made that love our own. That's why Jesus could say in Matthew 25, some of you need to get to my left and some of you need to get to my right. And Jesus says, to those of you on my right, he says, you're going to enter into heaven. Why? Because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. But then he speaks to those on the left and he says the opposite. He says, you know what? I was naked, hungry, thirsty, in prison, and you didn't, you didn't minister, me, minister to me at all. And what did those works reveal? That God's love was not in their hearts. No matter how much they went to church and said they loved people. No matter how much they preached from pulpits and said they loved people. God says, I want to see how you deal with people, even your enemies. And this is the indicator. So notice, let's read that point again. It's worthy to highlight. The ground of all forgiveness is found in the unmerited love of God. But by our what? Can, can you hit somebody with an attitude? An, an attitude is what's going on in your mind. And it's a treatment that you give towards another. So literally, God says, by your attitude towards others, by my attitude toward others, I show and we show whether we have made that love our own. You know, there's been a lot of falls in the Seventh-day Adventist church. And I'm not talking about seasons. I'm talking about moral falls. Individuals who God used, even in mighty ways. And uh, unfortunately... They yielded themselves to the influence of Satan and allowed themselves to fall. I remember one man who fell who was very well known, and, and the day I got it, I was with my friend Wes Peppers, and we were doing a meeting in California, and all of a sudden I heard about this horrible incident of this one brother, and as soon as I found out, I picked up my phone and dialed him. And I said, dear brother, you know the world is going to come after you because you were a standard bearer. And Satan would love to flood you with guilt. But I want to let you know that while you're on your road to repentance, I'm praying for you and I love you. His response, he, he just expressed, he said, you do not understand the timeliness of that phone call. Satan would love to destroy him. And what's so sad is there are people right now who still want to destroy him. They're testifying if they've made the love of God their own. They don't even realize what they're doing to themselves. When they put these nasty posts on Facebook and say the things they say, and I look at this and I say, how can you call yourself a child of God? And you're going to do your brother like that. So much unnecessary statements. So much judgment. Closing probation on people. And I'm not here to make light of sin, saints. Sin is horrible. We all need to get a clearer understanding of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. But I am amazed at how some of us deal with brethren, especially when they fall. And I know that God records. 
And therefore, saints, when I think about this thing, I thought, man, this is very powerful. I need to pay attention to this. Dwayne Lemon needs to pay attention to this. But then it gets even deeper than that. It goes on, continuing now in Steps to Christ, page 97. It says, when we come to ask mercy and blessing from God, we should have a spirit of love and forgiveness in our own hearts. It says, how can we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and yet indulge an unforgiving spirit? It goes on to say, if we expect our own prayers to be heard, boy, this is a hard pill to swallow. It says, if we expect our own prayers to be heard, we must forgive others in the same manner and to the same extent as we hope to be forgiven. I think that's a lot more than just telling somebody, I forgive you. I think it's a lot deeper than that. I am so thankful that God says, I am not like man. God says, I read the heart, and we can fool people, but we can't fool God. I've seen people do it a thousand times. Oh, you know, listen, look, look brother, I love you, but, and then, and, and after that but, it's amazing how we can tear a person apart. We all need an incredible checkup from our neck ups, brothers and sisters, because there's something desperately wrong with us. And this is a lot of times what can happen even in our homes. We, we try to forgive that child that did wrong again. Try to forgive that husband, that wife that did wrong again. And for some reason, we realize how short our experience of forgiveness really is. Yet, the Lord gives a short word. He says, if we expect our own prayers to be heard, we must, we must, not maybe, might, hopefully, kind of, sort of. He says, we must Forgive others in the same manner and in the same extent. And I believe that God deliberately puts those words to us because of what our dear brother referenced in Acts 5.31, where the Bible says that God gives to us repentance and forgiveness of sins. I don't have it in me, and I had to learn that. I hope we've learned it. And if you haven't learned it, I pray you get it tonight. There are perhaps some living offenses, the uncle who has done you wrong, the aunt that has done you wrong, the cousin, the husband, the wife, the children, grandparents, or somebody, somebody that in our mind psychologically, it is almost as if we cut them off forever. Sometimes we could care less if we ever see them again. We can care less. And God says, I can't bring a heart like that into my home. Because it was hearts like that that disrupted my home. And God cannot have Lucifer part two, saints. So therefore, we must understand that the Lord wants to do something special. He wants to heal our broken hearts. He wants to heal our broken homes. But he wants us to understand that forgiveness is very foundational. It's very foundational because very few people have it nor know how to truly demonstrate it, especially in the manner of Christ. So as a result of this, this becomes something that we would do well to consider. So I'm just putting up three steps. Now, you know, again, these are simple little things in study. I am sure this is not the end-all be-all, but I trust that these are gems that if we receive it in our hearts, it will bring blessings to your life personally and by God's grace to your homes. So when we consider step number one, the process where we're, we're just walking down the road. We're saying, Lord, I'm asking you to help me to have a forgiveness in my heart towards those who have offended, who have done wrong, and so on. And there will be some that it's going to take some time before they may even recognize their wrongs. Observe. 
The first point we should recognize is number one, Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, we know this text, I would imagine, very well. This text is probably new only to a great minority in this room, if to any. But I will say this. In this text of Scripture, we have to ask ourselves, do I accept this? And the reason why I am saying do we accept it is because sometimes we will say, I believe that my heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, but then when God gives certain counsels to us, the first thing we consult is our hearts. How do I feel about it? What do I think about it? Do I think it's okay? If I think it's okay, then I'm going to follow ABC. If I don't think it's okay, I'm not going to do it. So all of a sudden, it's kind of like this, and I love doing this, especially with young people. I'm in a meeting with a whole group of young people one day, and I come to them and I ask the question. I said, listen, if somebody knocked on your door, and you opened the door, and the person said, hello, I am deceitful above all things, and I am desperately wicked. Could you please let me in your house? I asked the young people, how many of you would let that man in your house? Everybody, oh, mm-mm, brother, mm-mm, that guy's not coming to my house. I slammed the door, lock it 20 times. You know, they, they, in other words, they get it. They understand. If you're going to be crazy enough to tell me I am deceitful above all things and I am a desperately wicked man, can I please come in your house? They understand I'd be crazy to let you in. Yet, as soon as God tells us something to do from his word... We start consulting a deceitful, above all things, and desperately wicked man, which is ourselves, and say, well, what do you think? You think we should do this? And we begin to consult and measure truth by our carnal minds. And God says, I can't help you if you're going to do that. We are not to test the word of God based on our carnal frames of thinking. There's nothing good in us, brothers and sisters. There's none that is good, no, not one. There's none righteous, no, not one. Solomon the wise man says in Proverbs 14 and verse 12, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Later on, Proverbs 16, 25, Solomon says it again. He repeats himself. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. We can't trust our senses. We can't let that guide us and lead us because it can lead us in wrong paths. So, Romans 8 and verse 7 says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So therefore, the first thing we have to realize is I can't trust myself. I can't rely on myself. I can't put any confidence in what I think or what I feel is right. Everything has to be based on thus saith the Lord. Going on, 1 John 4 and verse 20, If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. Now, do you believe that? Now watch this. He is a liar, for he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? This is the point. We will actually tell God we love him when God is like, look at how you treat your own brother. Look at how you treat your own sister. Look at how you treat your own church family. Look at how we may even treat our own people in our own homes, and we can act the way we act towards them and think we can go to church and have good worship anyhow. And demonstrate our love. God says, listen, you need to be reconciled unto your brother. Seek, plead, pray, push to do all that you can to make wrongs right. And for some of us, this might be one of our first steps. 
You see, the same way that we understand that this is a reality, if I understand my heart is deceitful, if I understand my mind is carnal, then God says, then listen, that means you cannot consult it to know what is right. You have to go to my words to know what is right. And God says, and one of the ways that's kind of a test, if you will, to know if my love resides within you is how you're going to treat your own brothers. And if you say that you love me, but you're mistreating your own brothers, your own sisters, your own family, then God says, listen, you're a liar. You don't love me. You don't know what love is yet. That love is definitely at least imperfect, imperfect. So this becomes kind of a test for us. And the same way we need to understand this, in other words, this is, it is impossible for us to love people naturally. God has to put that love within my heart. He must put that love in your heart. This is something that I must rely upon him. This is where Romans chapter 5, go there with me. In Romans the fifth chapter, remember the text? In Romans the fifth chapter, kind of Paul, he, he walks through this whole beautiful process of justification by faith. And I love how he articulates it as we look at Romans 5. And the Bible says in Romans 5, and we're going to go ahead and consider Romans the fifth chapter, and we're going to start at verse 1. It says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have access. Also, we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulations work. Patience. Patience. What else? What does it work? Experience. And what does experience work? Hope. And hope maketh not ashamed. Watch verse 5. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by who? The Holy Ghost which is given unto us. God must put his love in our hearts because naturally we don't have it. Now, the reason why this is important is because when it comes to the principles of justification by faith, it's the same principles that we can find in even demonstrating love within our homes towards those who may quite honestly be unlovable. You see, when you think of the principle of justification by faith, I love this. In Faith and Works, page 18, Ellen White says, There is not a point that needs to be dwelt upon more earnestly, repeated more frequently, or established more firmly in the minds of all than the impossibility of fallen man meriting anything by his own best good works. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. We have to keep this in the forefront of our minds. I don't have it within me to be saved, and I certainly don't have it within me to demonstrate the fruit of salvation, which we know is forgiveness. We don't have it in us. It's not in us. God has to put it there. It is impossible for us to do it ourselves. And anytime we try, we're going to find that we're contradicting, contradicting, contradicting. And it might even borderline bring us into the road of hypocrisy. So stage number one, we must understand that I am not able to even love my own family members and demonstrate true forgiveness, except it be Christ in me, the hope of glory. I need God to do for me that which it is impossible for me to do for myself. Step number two. In step number two, another passage of scripture. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, now if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The text goes on to say in the book of James 5, 16, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. 
Now, the reason why these texts are very important to us is because we need to understand that once we realize how messed up we are, we have to go to the ones whom we have offended and make the appropriate apologies. That means that God needs to help us overcome that wicked thing called pride. Sometimes you don't want to apologize. It makes you feel like you're a weakling. It makes you feel like, man, I'm, that means I'm empowering them to think that they were right. God does not want us to consider these consequences. If I realize I'm wrong, I'm going to go to you and I'm going to make known my wrongs. If I've sinned before God, I'm going to let God know what I've done wrong to him. If I've hurt my brother or my sister, I'm going to confess my faults to them. I'm going to let them know what I may have done wrong to them and, of course, extend my apologies. I'm going to go ahead and make wrongs right. Sometimes we don't do this, brothers and sisters. There are a lot of families that sometimes we do wrong and we hurt people real bad with our words and we just try to say, well, I realize I was wrong. Let me just start doing the right thing. But we never took time to confess the sin. We never took time to say, I got to pause before I start trying to make all these changes. Making the changes is absolutely imperative. But brothers and sisters, it starts with going to individuals and saying, listen, I, you know, I need to let you know something. I realize I hurt you. I realize I did you wrong. And I'm coming to you and I'm asking you that you would please forgive me. And you know how it is. Don't give those justification type uh, apologies. You know, you know, I did miss up, but it was because, you know, once you do that, it's over. You know how that is. That's going to take you down a path that there's not going to be any success. I like a, a little point my friend said one time. He said, when Jesus separated the sheep from the goat, he said, the sheep are the ones that go, bah, bah. But he said, but the goats, he says, you know what the goats like to do? They like the butt. <laughs> you get that? He said, the goats just love the butt. They love the butt with the head. So anytime you go ahead, you know, I apologize, but goat. <laughs> Be careful, saints. Be careful. We got to learn how to make our apologies appropriate without the interjection of justifications. It can null and void the whole process. Well, after we take this simple step number two, it's amazing. These, I, like, I like simple. Me personally, I like simple. You know, some, some preachers are very deep, and I love them. I like listening to them myself. But, you know, I don't, I don't aspire to be deep in that context. I, I, just, I like simplicity. I like it where it's at least comprehensible, where people can say, I can go home and practice this. God can help me to do this. A gospel that's not practical is an absolutely worthless gospel. Absolutely worthless gospel. So therefore, if we can at least catch the simplicity of what God is saying, we can assess our hearts and our homes and saying, I know that I'm not demonstrating this. I know that this is a weak spot for me in my home. I know this is a weak spot for me in my family. Then God says, all right, now you know how to do better and you understand the source that's going to enable you. The Bible also lets us know in Isaiah 55 and verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way. Beautiful promise. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Can the church say amen? amen. This is a beautiful promise, brothers and sisters. And again, I would ask you, do you believe it? Do I believe it? And the reason why I ask is because sometimes we can go ahead and we'll confess our sins, but we still walk around and we still mull over the wrongdoings and we still beat ourselves upon the head and we kind of put ourselves through this process. It was in the previous presentation, our dear brother, he answered the question about dwelling on all these things and these wrongs that we did. Well, brothers and sisters, if we really believe this, what is the point of dwelling? 
if we took this promise in the way we're told in the spirit of prophecy. Look at this. We are told in Faith and Works 36, through his prophet, the Lord promises, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Watch this. We must believe the naked promise and not accept feeling for faith. You got to accept the promise naked, brothers and sisters. You are not supposed to consult your feelings to say, am I truly forgiven? I'm forgiven when I feel forgiven. That's a lie. If God said it, and if we cooperated with the condition, the promise is sure. So therefore, it says, we must believe the naked promise and not accept feeling for faith. When we trust God fully, when we rely upon the merits of Jesus as a sin-pardoning Savior, we shall receive all the help that we can desire. God can make wrongs right, brothers and sisters. We teach our children in our home that it's not enough to just say, I'm sorry. Because you know how it is. Sometimes, you know, um, I don't know if you've seen these things, but I grew up with this, and I've definitely seen this through my children, especially in their younger ages. The child, one brother does wrong to the other brother or sister. The parent sees it, and the parent goes to the child and says, that was not right what you did to so-and-so. Apologize to your brother. And the child goes like this. I'm sorry. Now, again, I don't know if you've seen this in other places, but this definitely has happened uh, in a lot of circles that I've been around. And they, they kind of look at each other, I'm sorry. And then you know what we do? We look at that child, we say, you are not sorry. Say it again. Say it nice. And, you know, this is stuff that parents do on a regular basis, all right? Especially if, you know, we don't know. So, and, and I've learned that I believe when, we say, when they say they're sorry, they're, they are sorry. I, I believe that. It's just that there's different kinds of sorrow. When you study the book of Romans chapter 7, uh, no, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and you look at verse 10, the Bible says that there's worldly sorrow that leads to death, and there's godly sorrow that leads to life. So I don't question if they're sorry, I question what kind of sorrow do you have? You understand? I want the one that leads to life, not the one that leads to death. So, one of the things that has helped is we just simply say, when you apologize to your brother or your sister, you let them know, I am sorry for what I have done. Will you please forgive me? They, they are required to go ahead and ask that question, will you please forgive? Because they want the assurance that the other party has said, you know what, I thought about this, I have forgiven you. And there's been cases where sometimes they'll say, no, I haven't forgiven you yet. I need some time. And we say, all right. And then they go ahead and they're diligent about working it back out. But when we understand the confession of our sins and realizing that we have done wrong, then the goal is, is that we want to be able to have an assurance through the party by which we have offended to say, listen, can you forgive me? Do you pardon me for this? Can you accept what, I've, what, what I'm trying to demonstrate to you here? And sometimes, even for those of us who have been offended, we also can't look to feeling. I don't feel you're sorry enough, so I'm not going to forgive you. That can also be a mo another way of us manifesting. Now, if there are obvious evidences that the person is not sorry, then that is one thing. But if the person comes to you in sincerity, even though you're saying in your mind, a true sorrowful person is someone who's crawling on the ground, ripping their nails in the floor, crawling to you, grieving with tears in their eyes, saying, please forgive me. If that's our only picture of sorrow, maybe something is wrong with us. And whoever doesn't do that... They're not really sorry. So we got to be careful of some of these fabricated concepts of what makes up a sorry person in our minds. 
The Bible makes it very clear when an individual recognizes the sin that they have done to the party that they have done it to, and they realize that that party has been offended, and they are hurt by the fact that they hurt this individual by which they, by whatever it is that they did, and they realize it was wrong, and they are coming to that person asking them, please forgive me. That is a demonstration of the concept of godly sorrow. What is the example that we know of this? Psalms 51. In Psalms, the 51st division, you remember that David gave his repentant prayer. And in Psalms 51, he says something that was very different from Judas. Judas, you remember, his repentance was based on, I have turned in and betrayed an innocent man. That was from his own mouth. And Judas knew Deuteronomy 27, 25, that says, Cursed be the man that betrays an innocent person. So Judas knew, I betrayed an innocent man. I am going to go under God's curse. So Judas was more consequence-focused in his repentance than sorry for his sin. And that's why his repentance led to death, because it was not genuine from the heart. David, he has sinned. He realizes his error. He realizes it to the way that he expresses it right here. In Psalms, the 51st division, what does the Bible say? It says in verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Oh, I like verse 3 and 4. It says, For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. David realized, I have sinned, and there was no buts. There was no buts. This was a fruit of that blessed gift of true repentance. That was manifested in David's heart. And therefore, we know, number one, I have to recognize I cannot demonstrate forgiveness and love in my home without the Lord. I can't do it. It's impossible. I can't just intellectually make a decision, say, I'm going to love my wife and love my children and love my family. It doesn't work like that. It'd be nice, but it doesn't work like that. We're going to have to go to God to do something in us we cannot do for ourselves. Number two, we have to understand you've got to make an effort, a deliberate effort to make wrongs right. If you offended somebody, you have to deal with that offense. Don't just come home and start doing a bunch of right stuff. You got to pause and do that hard thing. You got to do that hard thing. You got to call that person from whatever busyness they're doing, look them in the eyes, and let them know against thee and thee only have I sinned and I have hurt you. And I'm asking you for forgiveness. This is the matter of making wrongs right. So we got to go to God and the individual. We are not to allow feelings to replace faith. Once that thing is confessed, now you can feel clean. Now you can say, the person has said they forgive me. The person has accepted my, my apology. I now am determined to go ahead and start doing that which is right. I've, I've went to the Lord and the Lord has forgiven me. I claim these promises. And now from this day forward, now unto him that is able to keep me from falling. And you press on toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Jesus Christ. This is very, very important principles, saints. Very important principles. I love fundamentals. Now... Step three. When we think about step three, step three is also a very important point here. In step three, the Bible lets us know something. Number one, David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. I like that aspect of his prayer. 
David says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And the reason why I like verse 10 of Psalms 51 is because it is kind of like the first reformatory aspect of David's prayer. You know, before verse 10, he's just kind of going on like, I've done this, I've done that, I recognize I've done this, I've done that, and so on. But then when he gets to verse 10, he says, Lord, now I'm asking you, create in me a clean heart. I fell because I didn't have a clean heart. So now I need a clean heart. And this is a beautiful prayer because it is in, let's see if my memory can get this right, and you can check me on it. In volume one of the testimonies, page 469, Ellen White actually says that the first work of reformation in the individual is a reformation or change in the imagination. What's going on in the mind? So that's why it's really beautiful when you read Psalms 51, when the Bible says, he says, created me a clean heart, a clean mind. Get my mind cleaned up. My mind is what got me in trouble. Now that I have recognized how messed up my mind is, and I can't do anything without you, I need you. Also, I'm going to confess my wrongs, and I'm going to confess my wrongs to the parties that I've offended. After that, Lord, I need a clean mind now. I need a brand new way of thinking. I need a brand new way of understanding. I need a brand new way of living. He goes on, of course, in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. And of course, the text says, Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. This is a beautiful principle, brothers and sisters, that God lets us know that I can take away the old and I can give the new and I can do it upon my merits. This is a beautiful thing for us to understand. Forgiveness is possible even in the home. Forgiveness is absolutely possible even in the home. Now, the reason why this becomes important is because go to Ephesians 4. I want you to see something here. In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul gives a counsel to us that we would do well to consider. Ephesians chapter 4, and I want you to see what the Bible says as we look at verses 31 and 32. Because a lot of times we can hear, God has called me to forgive. God has told me to forgive. God has counseled me to forgive. I am supposed to forgive. But there's everything in our hearts saying, I don't want to. I don't feel like it. I don't want to. I refuse to. I re- and we, we reject and we fight God on this very point. Therefore, the Lord says, I'm going to give you a solution. I'm going to show you something that can help make this thing real. Because one of the things in the previous session with our dear doctor who was here, I love how he stated the point that he said, listen, we have to demonstrate sorrow, but we don't have it naturally. He already made that point. And he talked about how God has to put it in us. But now I'm going to show you something that I think is, is, is very, very key of how God puts it in us. Let's notice what the Bible says in Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, verses 31 and 32, the Bible says, Let all what? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Now, that sounds great. That would be wonderful if that could happen in all churches, wouldn't it? That'd be beautiful if it could happen in every home. All bitterness? You notice how I said all? What would a home look like with no bitterness in it? What would a home look like with no malice? No unforgiving spirit? None of these things. So it sounds great, but the question is how? Verse 32. The Bible says, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And what does it say next? Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. We just found the divine solution. 
You see, Paul gives an admonishment, but he also gives the point or power source by which the admonishment can become real. It's Calvary. He says very clearly, be ye kind one to another, forgive one another, showing all these things. And then he says, just as, that's what even as means, just as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. I thought about this one day. I did a study on true repentance. And I'm really like, Lord, how how do we get this thing? Because I grew up in church environments where I always heard, let go and let God. And I would say, how? Well, just give it all to Jesus. And I would say, how? Well, you just got to put your trust in him. And I would say, how? And I kind of went through this whole circle. And I didn't really understand it. So I hear victory over sin. I hear put away all our sins. I I hear all of these things. And I'm like, all right, sounds fantastic. I understand I need to do it. I understand it. How? How in the world is this going to happen? Well, think about it. When I was studying repentance, I realized something. The Bible says in the book, I said 1 Corinthians 7, verse uh, verse 9 and 10, when I was talking about worldly sorrow, it was actually 2 Corinthians 7. Forgive me. Turn there with me very quickly. Look at this text of scripture. I believe we can find a key. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, notice something the Bible says. It's beautiful. 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter. And watch the text. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, when the Bible speaks about repentance, because we know that repentance is something that is not innate. We cannot conjure it up ourselves. We need God to put it within us. But the question is how? How do we have this done? How does the Lord do this? Well, look at the text very carefully. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and now we're looking at verse 9. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. Watch this, verse 10. For godly sorrow works what? All right, so godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. When I look at that text, what I understand is that I am called to repentance. The only way it can happen is I must have something called godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is the key ingredient to make true repentance. If I don't have a godly sorrow, I cannot truly repent. You understand? You can't have a carob cake without carob. You can't have a banana split without bananas. You cannot have repentance without godly sorrow. It's a key ingredient. So what do you think is the natural next question? How in the world do I get this? God, how, how, how do I get a godly sorrow for my sin? We saw it demonstrated through David. But how do I get it? Zechariah chapter 12. In Zechariah the 12th chapter... Zechariah helps us with this. Zechariah helps us with this. In Zechariah, the 12th chapter, there's something that is beautifully stated in verse 10. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And when you get there, just say amen. All right. The Bible, the Bible says in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, it says, and I will pour upon the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, and they shall do something. What are they going to do? They're going to look upon me whom they have what? Pierced. 
And what's going to be the effect of it? They shall mourn or have sorrow. They shall mourn as one mourns for his only son and shall be in bitterness as one who is in bitterness for his firstborn. Brothers and sisters, the key on how we can receive this forgiveness within our hearts is you got to look and live. We're going to have to study Calvary. We're going to have to look at it. And I'm going to show you this now. We got to study Calvary. Calvary must become so central to our study life, our teaching life, our advocacy, our daily living, our practical life. The more that we bring the principles of the cross into our homes is the more that you're going to start seeing shackles coming off. You're going to start seeing all sorts of demonstrations of freedom, studying Calvary, looking at what the cross teaches us, gaining the lessons from the cross, and then learning how to bring it into the daily life. Observe this point. This is a beautiful point here. Ministry of Healing 460. I lied to you now. When I read this, every minister, every teacher, every individual that proclaims God's word should understand these points. Every homeschooling mother... Every pastor, elder, deacon, I don't care what position we hold, if we dare to teach the Word of God to others, we must understand this science. Look at what it says. In Ministry of Healing 460, paragraph 4, it says, Let the cross of Christ be made the science of how much education? Of all education, the center of how much teaching? Of all teaching and how much study? Now ask yourself the question, do I do that? When I teach... When I study, when I gain education, do I make the cross of Christ central? How do I even do that? That's what people ask. How do you do that? How do you make this thing? Look at it. It gets even deeper. Look at what it says in the next point. It says, let it be brought into where? The daily experience and what else? How, how do you bring the cross of Christ into the daily experience and practical life? These are questions. In other words, if I were to give a nice family homework assignment, I would challenge many families. When we teach missionaries, we talk about the cross of Calvary. We talk about this being central and all the things that they do. Because there are ways you can take the principles of the cross and you can bring it into your ministry. You could bring it into your job. You can bring it certainly into home government. Brothers and sisters, there are some gems to learn from Calvary. And Christ wants us to make this central to our studies because let me tell you something. When I look at a man who knows that I am worthy of death and he was willing to love me so much that he was going to give the best of what he had that I may have life, which is his own son, that is a love that I don't understand, but I accept. And as I accept this love, I am motivated now to demonstrate that when others come and offend me. You will be amazed, brothers and sisters. Sometimes we can get so incredibly detail-oriented in our studies that we cannot accept simple principles like look and live. Is there anything wrong with detailed study? Oh, I believe in detailed study. I really do. I really do. I do believe in that very much so. It is absolutely essential. But brothers and sisters, we have to learn how to take information from the head and let it translate to the heart. If we don't know how to do that, we're just going to find ourselves a bunch of intellectual giants in the movement, but still unconverted. 
And I know how to shake a man's hand and say happy Sabbath when I know in my mind I hate you and I wish I would never see you again. I know how to do that, saints. I've done that for a long time. A long time. Shake hands. Man, what's going on, brother? I've had it done to me and I've done it to others. I'm being straight up with you, saints. I'm being very, very real and honest. There are people who can quote Bible and spirit of prophecy all day long. And that's a beautiful thing. The Bible says, I've hid thy word in in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So there is no sin in memorizing scripture and memorizing quotations from the spirit of prophecy. But woe be unto you and me if it doesn't translate to my daily life. When do I get to a point that I can shake my brother's hand and actually say, I actually really love you. I actually really care about you. I actually want the best for you. I'm actually willing to give you the benefit of the doubt rather than deem you a wicked man or an apostate so quickly as it is very easy to do in our human nature. Brothers and sisters, I want to make it very clear. I believe in dress reform. You hear me? I believe in dress reform. I wish it was preached more often from pulpits. You got a bunch of audio verse listeners and YouTube and all these other things, and I don't hear enough messages on dress reform. And I'm telling you right now, we can ignore it all we want. The word of God does not change. We believe that spiritualism, we believe that uh, uh, the emerging church, the one movement and contemplative prayer, spiritual formation, we believe that women's ordination, we believe some of these things are just horrible things that's coming in our church that's tearing us apart and separating us from God. Well, I got news for you. Volume 4, The Testimonies to the Church, page 647. I quote, Obedience to fashion is pervading our Seventh-day Adventist churches and is doing, watch my words, more than any other power to separate our people from God, end quote. And yet, how often do we hear sermons on dress reform? So it's amazing. We can talk about everything else. My brother said, I believe in dress reform. I think we need to hit it. I think we need to hit it unapologetically, yet accurately, faithfully. But we need to hit it. Because it's doing more than any other power to separate our people from God. Saints, you can't change the word of God. It is what it is. I believe in health reform and eating right and drinking right, living right, practicing the laws of health and all these other things. I believe in country living, true education. I believe in it, brothers and sisters. But hear me good. I believe it is easier to change your dress than it is to forgive someone who has offended you. I believe it is easier to change your diet, change what you drink, and even change from a city to a country location than it is to forgive somebody that broke your heart. And therefore, some of us can allow ourselves to think that because I'm practicing dress reform, because I'm on the whole food plant-based diet, because I am out of the city, in the country, and because I practice what we call true education, some of us think I therefore am a Christian while we can harbor bitterness anger, resentment, and unforgiveness in our hearts towards our brethren. I believe with all my heart, some of us don't even know what an enemy really is yet. I think prophecy is showing us we're going to get ready to understand that word enemy on a whole new level if we stay faithful. I believe Revelation 12, 17, the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. I believe we have not seen that prophecy fulfilled yet. But the day is coming. And if you and I don't know how to love our own wives or husbands, 
own children, the uncle or the cousin. Or what, what in the world makes you think you're going to love the man that might try to take your child away from your house? Did you hear about the Seventh-day Adventist woman that refused to give a certain drug uh, to her child that the doctor said she should give him? She said, I want to try something else to give to my child. She went and did that. And what happened? The doctor found out that she did not go according to his recommendation. And he called the police. The police came to her house and took her child. My wife is just reading the article to me today. This is brand new news, brothers and sisters. And you know what's happening? She is not allowed to see her child until the hearing in August. Child taken away. Her child's going to be under, her child's going to be under an influence of false education and perhaps demons. Because you're saying, you don't understand, brothers and sisters, what we're getting ready for. We don't have a clue of what an enemy is. We think, my wife is always mad at me. She's my enemy. My husband, my children, we, we think they're enemies. You have no idea what an enemy is. Some of us are getting ready to face some real enemies, brothers and sisters. And it's going to be serious business. And they are going to squeeze us to the core. And I've learned something about sponges. You know something I learned about a sponge? When you squeeze a sponge, whatever's in the sponge comes out of the sponge when you squeeze it. I believe all of us are sponges. Every single one of us in this room, we're all just a bunch of human sponges. And soon and very soon, a crisis is going to come to God's people. You know what that crisis is going to do to us? It's going to squeeze us. And if Christ is not in you and in me when we get the squeeze, then whatever is in you is going to come out of you. And if self is still in us, then when we're squeezed, self will come out of us. And that's why we're told in volume 581, many a star that we have admired for their brilliancy even will go out in darkness. It's no time for forms and fashions, brothers and sisters. If you know you got drama in your home, you know you got unforgiveness and bitterness, you need to take yourself a trip back to that cross. You need to study it. You need to ask yourself, Lord, what does it teach? How can I make it practical? Seriously, I wish we had the time. If we had the time tonight, I would walk you through step by step. How can I make Calvary practical in my home? I studied it. I said, I got to study it. I mean, come on now. I said, I got to learn this. I want to learn it. And I dare not profess myself as a master, but I'm learning. I'd be a liar if I were to say I don't understand anything about it. I understand it. And I just want to go deeper. There's more about Jesus that I want to learn. So therefore, this becomes imperative. How much to more to those of us who understand? We know Christ is in the most holy place. We know that, saints. Or we should. I was in a meeting in 2004 where a man came and he said, the cross is behind us. The most holy place is before us. And our focus needs to be on the most holy place. And I remember I was listening to that sermon and I thank God for present truth alarms. You know God can put a present truth alarm in your brain? In other words, when you start hearing some error, falsehoods, your, your brain, ooh, something goes off. Like, whoop, 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 whoop. So this brother said, the cross is behind us. He literally, he literally threw away the cross. Calvary is not our focus anymore. He said, the most holy place is our focus. And he started preaching that. And I was like, man, something don't sound right. Everybody around me said, amen. But I said, mm. I said, oh, no. I said, something don't sound right about that. Something doesn't sound right about that. I mean, I know the most holy place is there, but, but something doesn't sound right about that. So I started thinking. And as I started thinking, I started studying. And I'm grateful because, you know, you have the promise of John 14, 26. We all have that promise. You got to apply yourself, but we have that promise. The Spirit of God will teach you and bring to your remembrance the things that you have been told. 
So if we're studying, the Lord will bring it back at its right time. So I'm studying, and I'm listening to this brother, and I'm thinking, and I'm like, man, that doesn't even sound right. And next thing you know, I go back, and God helped me understand a beautiful principle. You'll remember in Leviticus 16 and verse 14, speaking of the most holy place, and specifically the mercy seat, it says, and he shall take of the what? Blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon what? The mercy seat. Now, where's the mercy seat? The mercy seat is where? It's in the most holy place. But what's being sprinkled on it? Blood. What does the blood represent? It represents sacrifice, does it not? Who was sacrificed? Christ. So when we think of Christ's sacrifice, we're thinking of the cross. So is the cross represented, is the light of the cross in the most holy place? Yes. Now watch this. It says, and he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. To the point that the Bible goes on to say in Hebrews 10 and verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by how? The blood of Jesus. So what is it that enables me to even get into the most holy place? The blood of Jesus. And the blood of Jesus is represented and was spilled on the cross. So therefore, it makes perfect sense when inspiration clearly says the intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. Watch the next point. By his death, he began that work, which after his resurrection, he ascended to complete in heaven. We must by faith enter within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered there. What is the there? The most holy place. This, Because that's the subject. Think about it. By his death, he began that work, which after his resurrection, he ascended to complete in heaven. We must by faith enter within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, there within the veil, there within the veil, the light from the cross of Calvary is reflected. Don't you tell me that the cross is not in the most holy place. In the most holy place, the light of Calvary is reflected. At no point do the children of God ever forget the cross. And I believe one of the reasons why some of our homes are so hardcore, I believe one of the reasons why some of our homes are so rough and tough, so law-oriented but lacking in love, I believe one of the reasons why is because we forgot Calvary while we focused on simply the ark and its components. We didn't blend properly, saints. And I'm going to tell you the truth. God had to show me this. God had to show me this. I'm serious, man. I've gone before God's people, and I've talked so much about the most holy place and victory over sin and all these other things. And yet here it is that I can look back and I can say, Father, I have been cross light. And I had to confess my own sin before God. I had to go back to Calvary. Lord, teach me this. Show me how to do this right. Because the last thing I want to do, I don't want to deceive anybody. I don't want people to hear the message and become fearful. I don't want the people to hear the message and simply just, you know, start saying, man, I, I just got to change my life. Brother, you can't change anything. You need to change, but you can't do it. I can't do it. What's going to bring about this blessed element? What's going to do it? It's, it, it, it? It is the light of the cross, brothers and sisters, understanding what Calvary means to us, how it empowers us. And therefore, I ask the homework assignment I'd love to leave you with. I encourage you as families, you start saying, how can we Make the cross of Christ the center of all of our studies, the center of all of our teaching.
How do I make it the science of all my education? And most importantly, how do I bring it into my daily experience and my practical life? Because here's the promise. I didn't read the promise. And this is where we'll close on it. Oh, yeah, here we go. Watch this. Here's the promise. Look at the promise. We are so concerned about our young people, aren't we? Is that right? We're concerned about our young people. We'll tell them about bad music, bad dress, and everything else. But you better tell them about Calvary. You better help them see Calvary in bad dress. You have to help them see Calvary in dress reform. Help them see Calvary in health reform. Help them see Calvary in music reform and all the other reforms. Why? Look at what it says. Let the cross of Christ be made the science of all education, the center of all teaching and all study. Let it be brought into the daily experience and practical life. And look at what it says. So... In other words, if we do this, something's going to happen. What's the promise of Jesus? It says, so will the Savior become to the youth a daily companion and friend. Every thought will be brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. What parent does not want that for their children? What parent does not want that? I've had cross-less devotions in my home. I had to realize that. I said, Lord, I, I, listen, I can lay down a rule. I know how to do that. I know how to say, we're not doing that. Daddy can't, nope, not going to do that. Why? Well, and I can give him, I can give him text, scripture, and all those other things. But when I started learning how to add the cross element, I started seeing changes, real changes. I started learning how to bring Calvary into the teachings and the studies and all these things. Listen, saints, you start doing word search, crucifixion, cross. You start doing word search in the script, and you watch how much pops up in the Bible. And then when you study it, pray, Father, what is the practical application that I'm learning from this reference as it pertains to the cross? What am I learning from this reference as it pertains to the cross? What am I learning from this reference? Paul says in Galatians 6 and verse 14, he says, I glory in the cross. And he said, and I am crucified unto the world and the world unto me. So if I truly understand the cross, I understand that it creates separation from the world, not magnetism to the world. You understand? So now I can start studying Calvary, and I can say, man, look at this, look at this. I can see so many principles now in the Bible of how I can take the principles of the cross and bring it in my home. And I believe a cross-centered home rightly understood, rightly practiced, is a healed home. A healed heart. There's healing in the forgiveness of sins. There's healing that comes from Calvary. And Jesus says, this is what I want to give to my people. And therefore, saints, it's very simple. If you and I realize, you know what, I I admit I... I have not been that centered in this. I have not made this my focus as I should. Maybe I haven't been deliberate. Maybe I've taken it for granted. I'm just telling you, I know I did many years throughout preaching. I have. But God has really helped to make some changes. And I, I, am, I, am, I, am, I am not just enjoying it. I am bubbling over with joy. Seriously. I mean, it's not that Christianity was a drag to me anyhow. I still loved it. But man, I love it even more. I really love it. I'm just like, Lord, this is sweet. I didn't know it could get this good. And now I'm understanding. And there's pain. Listen, bearing a cross has some pain. But when I behold that my master did it, and I know that he can give me strength to do it, then I'm willing to bear it as long as he's my source of strength. And so, saints, I'm not here to present the cross as some cakewalk. That's the last thing the cross is. It's going to include a lot of pain. It's going to include denial of self like you've never denied yourself before. But one thing I've learned in Christ Object Lessons 333, 
All God's biddings are enablings. Whatever he calls you to do, he says, I already have a power source to give unto you that you can do whatever I tell you to do. My hope and my prayer is that you really think hard. Think hard. Who have I not demonstrated Calvary to? Who have I been so unforgiving to? Who is it that I just refuse to even give them a chance to make wrongs right because I'm mad, I'm upset, I don't appreciate that? I mean, seriously, there are people in this room that have probably been molested by a relative. That's serious. But God actually expects us to even be willing to forgive them. People who have been abused, people who have been hurt, people who have gone through all these different things. And yes, there's many ways to apply how do you do that. I'm not telling somebody to just run up to your, your molesting uncle and just say, I forgive you and, and I'll sit on your lap again. No, brothers and sisters. No, 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 no. There, there's going to be some checks and balances. God forgives, but he also restores before he brings up to heaven. We can forgive, but relationships still have to go through a process of restoration before things can get back to the way it was. You understand? So therefore, saints, if you know, I've been harboring bitterness, I've been harboring unforgiveness, I've been harboring hatred, malice, and all these things toward friends, family members, relatives, fellow brethren, even in the church, even in the church. I want to let you know that Jesus died for adulterers too. Jesus died for molesters. Jesus died for murderers. He didn't just die for a certain class of sinners. He died for sinners. If Jesus died for sinners, who are you and who am I to close anybody's probation? That is God's job and God's job alone. You and I have to just go to the Lord and let him work in our hearts of how we can demonstrate Christ, even to our offenders. And with God, this is possible. Amen? Amen. So if you know that there's some things you maybe need to reconcile, I want you to make your own mental list, and maybe when you go home, you'll make a literal list. But start thinking about it. Who have I been partial to? Who have I demonstrated this partial forgiveness where I have not forgiven in the same manner and extent as I want to be forgiven? Who are these people who have offended me? And maybe you might find it's your own spouse. Might be your own husband or wife. Might be your own children. Might be your own siblings. Might be one of your boys, one of your friends, one of your girlfriends. Might be one of the brethren in the church. As a gospel worker, I, had, I admit there are times that people have taught error in the church. And maybe I've been a little cold. Maybe I've been more cold than I needed to be. If I may, I would like to give you one very, uh, very good homework assignment. Some of you might do it tonight, tomorrow. I would like for you all to read volume two of the Testimonies to the Church, page 200 to 215. It is a specific study on the cost of Calvary. I believe a faithful reading of these pages is going to help us to understand it's more than a story of a man that died on a cross in a painful way. It's going to get to the core of the cost of Calvary. Again, that is volume two of the Testimonies to the Church, page 200 to 215. All of us, brothers and sisters, have to assess ourselves and ask God, Lord, teach me how to be like the pattern man, Jesus Christ. And if you realize that, Lord, I need to square away some things and I need to make some changes, then I want to invite you to your knees with me as we go to the Lord in prayer. 
And as you're praying, I want to give you a moment of silent prayer so you can let the Lord speak to your heart and maybe bring some things up to you that you need to see. And I will do the same, and then I will close out loud from up front. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for helping us to see the divine solution on how you can truly help our homes to become homes where angels love to dwell. We thank you that the power of God is present to heal. And that power was demonstrated to reveal the forgiveness that Christ offers to every human being. And Lord, we all want forgiveness, but you told us that we have to be willing to also demonstrate it to others. And I believe many of us have been offended by others to the point that maybe we have given up. We're no longer willing to even try to make things better. It's just easier, just going separate ways. And sometimes the bitterness, the anger, and the resentment remains. And Lord, these things are like cancer in the soul. They can't reside within us for long. Sooner or later, they eat us up. And it kills us. It may not kill us physically, even though it can do that. But it definitely can kill us spiritually. And Lord, I just pray that you'll please forgive us of our sins. We pray that you will give us the gift of true repentance, godly sorrow. Help us to be more deliberate in our study of Calvary. See how we can see it in the center of all education, study, and even our teachings. Show us how to bring it into our daily experience and practical life. Make it real for us, Father. Help us to truly be changed and experience the power of the gospel. And I'm thankful, Lord, that though these things may seem impossible with man, we're grateful all things are possible with God. And so abide with us now. Keep us, Lord. Thank you for another Sabbath day that has now begun and we have entered into thy rest. May we sense the presence of thy Holy Spirit. And may he be with us as we go to our separate places until tomorrow where we shall come again and meet together and feast upon your words. This is our prayer that we do ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.